electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And hi, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The morning's market rally has faded, but stocks are higher right now. The Nasdaq is just a couple of points in the green, and it's down about a percent and a half over the past week. But my guest coming up in just a moment here says that Amazon, Google, and Facebook are undervalued. He'll make his case. Plus, there are only about 100 shopping days until Christmas, and maybe only half of them are even usable. With more companies warning about shortages, former SAC CEO Steve Stadov is here to explain why. And China's crackdown continues. Old tech is hot again, like halftime was just discussing. And what's the next trade for Apple in a very big week? Those stories are all coming up in rapid fire. But we want to start with today's market action. Dom Chu is here with the numbers, Dom. All right, so green overall, but we have faded from the highs of the session so far. Just to give you a point of reference, At the highs of the day, the S&P 500 was up roughly 34 handles, 34 points, down five at the low. So tilting towards the lower end of that range overall. Still, though, 44.66, the last trade for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the day, 15,127. The Dow Industrials, 34.852, up three quarters of 1%, or roughly 240-some points. A couple of stocks very much in focus so far today. One potential deal news here, Tronox. This is a company that makes titanium dioxide. For those people who aren't familiar with that chemical side of things, it is the pigment, the dye that's used to make paint white. That company, Tronox, could be taken over. Reuters is reporting a possible deal by Apollo Global to take this company private at 27 bucks a share. That's a source report. Nothing confirmed from the companies yet. However, it did spike at one point, coming back off those highs, only up roughly 13 14% right now. So watch Tronox on possible M&A. And then Albemarle, another chemicals company, also known, by the way, for being one of the top, if not the top, lithium producer in the world. Why is that important? Over the year-to-date period, it's up 53%. It's been a green energy play. A lot of folks bidding this stock up over the last several months because of that play on car batteries, electric vehicles, that sort of thing. It hit a record high in Friday session. Now a lot of that profit taking coming in yesterday, or rather on Friday, and then today as well. But again, Albemarle Shale is the worst performer right now in the S&P 500. So a couple of chemical slash industrial names to keep an eye on. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Absolutely. That's a closely watched one. Dom, thank you very much. Now, we've heard a number of guests on this show cautioning about two high tech valuations and warning against those names. And the S&P tech sector has dropped about 2% over the past week. But my next guest says not so fast. Big cap tech is actually undervalued and the pullback may have created some opportunities. Joining me now is Chris Davis. He is chairman and portfolio manager at Davis Advisors. And how do you like that for an intro, Chris? Well, I think we got to add a lot of nuance to that, Kelly. I, <laughs> Not allowed. <laughs> you know, the issue is this. Look, there, there's likely to be a lot of bad headlines on tech in the next six months, the next year. We're in the front end of this regulation cycle and, and so on. So I actually think both sides could be right. I think you could really have short-term headwinds that could produce real 
buying opportunities in these names. But I think that it, it's early to be very optimistic about the next six months, the next year. On the other hand, we're long-term investors, right? So if I was to think about, you know, over this generation, look, these, these are companies that are still relatively early in to what might be four decades, five decades of sort of uh, of of real leadership. These are the blue chips. Earlier, your guests were talking about Procter and Gamble and Johnson. Think of those companies in the 60s. They already had long histories. They had 40, 50 years to go. So I think if you're going away to a desert island for the next decade or more, absolutely buy them, put them away. If you want to be clever with valuation, I think we should expect some headlines and a bumpy ride uh, over the next few months or even the next year. So sort of the, the Berkshire, buy a great company at a good price, not a good company at a great price type of thing. And, and I bring up that analogy for a reason. I mean, I often think of you as that style of investor. So when you're looking at big cap tech and talking about the opportunity that you see over you know the next couple of decades, and yes, Berkshire owns Apple, but I ask myself, why don't they or didn't they or what opportunity point could they have possibly gotten in and owned some of these names? You know, I don't know if you saw Bill Smead's piece the other day saying where were they in the spring and mid, you know, summer even of 2020. I mean, the market had given these amazing opportunities. Berkshire did nothing. So it doesn't even have to be big cap tech. It's just where are they? And, and again, is, is this kind of the obvious then play, the holding play for the next two decades? And again, I don't know where that leaves Berkshire investors. Well, Berkshire Hathaway has been has been one of the great compounding machines of 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 a generation, and and it also still has a long way to go. The most powerful characteristic of Berkshire and of Berkshire's leadership has been their ability to adapt and learn. And so uh, uh, the Apple investment was a staggering example. I mean, imagine at that stage with a uh, you know an octogenarian CEO getting that investment. So right, you could say it was late, but it was a huge amount of investment, a huge value creation. I think they're also first to admit that missing Google or missing Amazon were mistakes. But the idea that you would need to worry if you had Berkshire Hathaway in a trust for your children about it compounding wealth over the next generation, you don't need to worry. You have other stuff to worry about. And of course, in a galloping bull market, it's always the old saw that, oh, Berkshire Hathaway is a dinosaur. We heard this in the late 90s when they didn't own any dot-com stocks. Uh, you know, what was amazing is how that company learns. It is built to last it is built with the idea that these they are, are in a sense, trustees of their shareholders' sure. wealth. They are thoughtful and careful. So I think those those stories are of, of their, their obsolescence are, are always feel to me a little premature. Well, and I had to ask you, because you're not only a longtime follower of the company, and, but also somebody who sees the value in big cap tech at these levels. You know, the big debate with, Bert, with Warren back in the late 90s was him saying that dot-com was overvalued, and he was correct about that, and they stuck with the different trade and they were proved right, but I think you would be describing this as a very, very different environment. So, you know, in fairness, you also see opportunities in the banks, but I think because those are more expected, <laughs> I've, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat less intrigued by them. Do you have any other comments that you would make for investors, Chris, who are trying to figure out whether to move into the crypto space, and if so, how? What to do with the clean energy revolution? We just mentioned Albemarle, lithium, all of these new things. You know, is that where the work and the invest, even Tesla? You know, I'd be, I would be very curious, to, you know, what you think when you look at that name. Well, I, you know, in a way, Kelly, you just raised three totally different <laughs> themes, each of which are, I mean, Tesla's, 
the opportunity of, you know, Tesla looks grossly overvalued as an auto company. Now, Elon Musk is one of the great geniuses on the planet Earth, and the likelihood that Tesla evolves into some sort of operating system for cars or or some sort of, you know, I, I would never short a, a man of that unbelievable genius. If it's simply an auto company, it's significantly overvalued. And then you mentioned commodities and clean tech. Well, of course, when you think of yourself, if you imagine you were a salesman, what you want to do is, is talk about stuff that is hot, that's on people's mind. The fact is, over time, usually you don't make a lot of money in commodities, mm -hmm. whether it's lithium or copper. Uh, you know, you might make money in part of a cycle, but there's a lot of hype in those areas. That's why I think you're right to talk about things like the financials, quiet, difficult to obsolete compounding machines. You know, look where the headlines are bad. Don't don't jump onto the uh, uh, onto these sort of hot uh, topics of the day, all the buzzwords. And so I think it's a time to really look at financials as sort of the core undervalued part of the market today. And, and maybe some of these really the blue chips of tomorrow, the Googles that are really in a way what Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble, a lot of these other yeah. companies have been over the last 40 or 50 years. No, I, I love that. It's a, sort of bet on Elon Musk and bet against commodities of any kind, <laughs> new or old or, or whatever. Uh, well, no. at least don't bet against Elon Musk. I, I wouldn't bet with him because it, it just looks so, uh, uh, so unfathomable based on the data that is there today. Yeah. Uh, but but I just think people love to declare themselves on one side or the other of that bet. And the, the truth is, we can't know. And and uh, both sides, I think, are, are taking an enormous amount on faith and are playing with fire. Oh, Chris, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks, Kyle. Good to see you. Chris Davis with Davis Advisors. And a quick programming note, speaking of big tech, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy will join Tech Check tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern time. We are really looking forward to that. You don't want to miss it. Energy is the best performing S&P sector today with commodity prices climbing. Natural gas futures hitting their highest level since 2014 again. Damage from Hurricane Ida continues to impact gas and oil production. And a lot of the energy names are getting a lift today. Antero, ConocoPhillips, Cabot, Chenier. We spoke with the CEO of Chenier last week. They're all higher 3 to 5%. For more on just how high prices could go, and I'm going to call it what is happening here, Dan Jurgen is with me now. He is the IHS Market Vice Chairman. He is also author of the upcoming book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, out tomorrow. Dan, it is really good to have you here. I have one fundamental question to ask you. Are those who blame the clean energy transition for rising fossil fuel prices correct in doing so? In other words, are these policy choices to make this energy transition resulting in higher prices of natural gas and oil? Well, first of all, let me say, Kelly, it's great to be on. It, it, the, it's a new edition of the new map that's coming out tomorrow, uh, brought up to date for the Biden administration and the uh, Glasgow summit that's coming up. Uh, and you ask a profound question. I think at this point, you know, the, the clean energy, clean tech is a very small part of the overall energy mix. Uh, what we're seeing really is the economic rebound. There is some pressure against uh, new production uh, and investment. But um, basically, I, I think what we're seeing is the overall dynamic of the market. One place it does matter, one reason uh, natural gas prices are up so high in Europe is because it's one of those times when the wind isn't blowing and you're not getting wind generated electricity and it's being replaced with natural gas. So that's adding to the pressure along with China increasing its LNG exports uh, 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 and, and 
the economic yeah. recovery in the United States. I guess to put it the following way, and Goldman has a note on this, we're going to speak with them, with Jeff Curry later this week, where they say that demand is outstripping supply. But my question is, is the supply situation different? Is it literally constrained? Is it capped because of net zero policies, because of the ESG movement? In other words, normally if you had prices increase, you would increase supply to meet that. The markets would find a new equilibrium. What if that doesn't happen this time? Well, I think what it is, I mean, you see it in some parts of the world, let's say the United States, where the shale producers are being very disciplined because they know they have to return money to uh, investors. It's the, the second shale revolution is, is that return of money. Uh, you do have uh, the Middle East very happy to step into any vacuums, uh, lack of supplies. It's partly also uh, uh, this OPEC plus is maintaining discipline. But I think we are we are moving into a period of tight supplies when you don't have the same type of investment that you've had in the past and you start to have strong economic recovery. We've been through these kind of cycles before. And I, I think that's what the markets are telling us. And this winter, we could see natural gas prices a good deal higher than they are now if we have a cold winter. We still depend upon these commodities, yeah. fossil fuels, for 80 percent of our energy. Absolutely. Natural gas is 40 percent and plus gas to uh, homes for heating, I think, is, is about 50 percent. So uh, I guess the reason why I put it this way is if the supply is capped, then we should expect prices to stay high. And whether you're a trader or a consumer or anybody planning for it, you should expect prices to stay high. If the supply is not capped, if there's other weirdly bizarre reasons why this is all happening at the same time and the supply is not capped and more is going to come online, then those prices are going to drop. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, you do have to look at those other factors, weather and so forth, and what happens to the economy. I think OPEC plus uh, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia are kind of saying oil should be in this 65 to 75 dollar range. You have the Chinese uh, starting to release oil from their strategic petroleum reserve to keep prices down. I was in a conversation this morning with the energy minister of, uh, of India, who was very vociferous about high oil prices. So I think they're the countervailing process there. But we are in a tighter, we're going to be in a tighter period which is, I think, what you're getting at than what we've had in the last uh, couple of years where we have so much extra supply. Right. For one reason or another, you know, things are tight. And maybe it's one of those mongrel lollapaloozas where, where it takes eight or nine or ten different things to keep supplies tight. But nevertheless, that's where we are. Dan, yes, quick final comment. No, I, I was going to say exactly, because you could start to make a list of all the things that, that are there. And then you add, of course, a storm in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, adding to uh, everything else. So it's the accumulation of events. But the basic direction is towards tighter markets and uh, just look at the economic growth numbers, even with Delta. Yeah, and it could be very uncomfortable dealing with those prices this winter. Dan, we appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Dan Jurgen is the chair of IHS Market, the vice chair, I should say. Coming up, let's talk some holiday shopping. MasterCard is forecasting an earlier shopping season and bigger price tags. But as Nike shares get downgraded today on supply chain issues, we'll look at just how much retailers could actually benefit from all this. We'll speak with MasterCard senior advisor and former SAC CEO Steve Sadov next. Meanwhile, shares of Clear, the biometrics greeting company, are up 40% since going public in June. Later on, we'll speak with the CEO about how they're helping businesses handle digital vaccine verifications. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today 
at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Nike are dropping about 2.5% today. BTIG downgraded the stock, and Warrenville likely face a serious supply shortage, one that starts this holiday shopping season and could run through next spring, all because COVID has forced their factories, key factories in Vietnam, to shut down. Does the company risk missing out on big holiday sales? MasterCard's holiday forecast shows consumers are ready to spend thanks to pent-up savings and stimulus checks. Courtney Reagan joins me now with the numbers and a special guest. Courtney? Hi, Kelly. Yes, we've got 102 days left until Christmas, so why not let the shopping begin? MasterCard spending pulse does forecast that Santa will be ringing up those registers this year, predicting a total holiday sales increase of 7.4% compared to December 2020. That was before COVID vaccines were widely available, of course, with e-commerce predicted to grow almost 8% and in-store sales to grow more than 6.5% as consumers re-emerge from lockdowns. Apparel is topping wish lists with sales expected to surge, get this, 46% during the core holiday selling season, lifting department store sales and luxury spending. So luxury, separate from jewelry, is forecast to increase a whopping 93%. Joining me now is Steve Sadov, Senior Advisor to MasterCard and former Chairman and CEO of Saks. Steve, it's so great to have you here with us. You know, we've seen a pretty big surge in consumer spending throughout the year as we've reemerged from lockdowns and left our houses finally. But when you're looking at the holiday season, is there something in particular that's going to drive spending to these levels that MasterCard is predicting? Well, I think what you're seeing, Courtney, is a continuation of a trend you've seen over the last several months, which is a very strong, healthy consumer. There is a pent-up demand. The savings rate is high. The stock market is performing extremely well. And the consumer wants to get out and shop at apparel sales forecast. And you see it in the uh, July-August apparel numbers, which are stunningly high. They were as high as 75% growth. The consumer wants newness. They want some excitement. And they want to get into stores. Uh, you know, people have talked about the stores being dead, but you know, with even with the growth uh, of e-commerce, which is now at 18% of commerce, that means 82% of stores of sales are in stores, and stores are growing even versus 2019. Absolutely. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of factors at play this holiday season, not the least of which is all of this congestion that's still in the supply chain. Kelly talked about it a little bit based on what Nike was saying, but from your knowledge and your discussion with various retailers, is the holiday inventory here? I know that Janie and Jack, a children's retailer, has sent out emails to customers that basically says they're literally waiting for their ships to still come in with the inventory. You know, shipments are coming in late. They're coming in very slow. Uh, and a number of uh, retailers had ordered early. If this is going to be a seller season, you're going to run out of the hot items early. You're going to see markdowns and promotions less than you might on a normal year. doesn't mean you're not going to see promotions. But this is going to be a very healthy margin season for the retailers. 
but it's also going to be a supply issue. And you're going to find that if you don't get it early, that's why MasterCard's talking about an early season, because the consumer's starting to be aware they better go out and get the products early because they may not be around. And you're not going to find it if it's an apparel item in the sizes you want or if it's a hot toy item. Uh, you really do have to get out there early. It is a real issue relative to supply chains and costs. I think, hi, Steve, it's Kelly here. I think it's going to be a boon for the gift card industry because people like me will end up two days beforehand going, oh, my gosh, there's nothing to get. I better just get everybody a gift card and hope that it works out for the best. But I, here's my point. I want to pick up on the, this issue and uh, play for you what the CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors told us last week about this. Ken Hicks. Stock is available. It's just not in the quantities that it has been in the past. And uh, we're trying to get as much of it in as, as we can. We're in reasonable stock position now, but uh, it, it, if we th what we think is going to happen this holiday happens, it, it probably will be some shortages and outages on some of the most desired items. So it's best to, to get them early. So it will be really interesting, Steve, to see how this feeds through, because there's this normal pattern of the holiday season where everyone waits for a little bit better deal, waits for a little bit better deal, and then finally tries to button things down. And this year, they don't know if they should wait or not. One of the items he thought would be uh, possibly in shortage because of high demand and everything else going on was uh, jerseys for your favorite team. I think Ken's after, you know, Ken Hicks has done a terrific job with Academy, and he's absolutely right that you're going to see shortages on the key items, and waiting it out to see the bigger discount isn't the right strategy for the consumer this year. It's get it early when you can. Uh, this is, and it's going to be an early season. You saw it last year uh, play out as well when Amazon had the Prime Day in October, and everybody followed, this, uh, and you found out that, hey, it's better to get the sales early. The margins uh, come in well. Uh, and again, you're going to see some discounting, but it's not going to be the kind of clearance, deep discounting that you've seen over the years. You know, Steve, what really struck me in some of these MasterCard forecasts is the strength that department stores are expected to get. I know, obviously, the bulk of what department stores sell is apparel and the apparel numbers are strong. But department stores have not been a category that's really been off to the races. Is this going to be kind of a blip in the radar or could this actually be sustainable again? I think that's a great question, Courtney, and it's the real issue. Department stores are benefiting right now. The consumer wants to get back into the mall. They want experiences. They want to see newness. Apparel is hot and they're getting the traffic. And it's not just a 15 percent growth versus 20. It's a 5 percent growth versus 19 in a category that had not been growing. The question for the department stores is whether or not the consumer is going to have the experience that they want relative to either the customer service, finding the uh, types of items that they want, the variety, and whether they're going to return to the department stores. And delivering on that experience is going to be the key for them. And in an environment where labor is difficult, supply shortages, whether or not they have the key items in stock, that's a balancing act that the department stores have got to manage against, but it's really encouraging for them to see the kind of growth that they're seeing because they haven't seen it in years. Yeah, Macy's especially. Steve, thanks so much. Uh, Steve Sadov and our Courtney Reagan, thank you really for bringing this to us. Uh, again, going over the details of what MasterCard thinks will be a strong holiday season, just an early one with a lot of supply chain hiccups. Coming up, shares of this Chinese property developer are plunging after the world's biggest corporate landlord backed out of a takeover deal. We have the name and all the details ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is scheduled to address Congress in just about 30 minutes. He's expected to say that the Taliban would have resumed its attacks on U.S. troops if President Biden failed to withdraw them from the country, a commitment made by President Trump. In his opening statement, Blinken will say that commitment left Biden with just two options, ending the war or escalating it. President Biden left Delaware this morning for a trip to Idaho and California. In Boise, he'll meet with federal and state wildlife officials. In California, he will tour damage from the Calder fire. And then tonight, he'll appear at a rally for California Governor Gavin Newsom, who is fighting against a recall. And tonight on the news, recall voting ends tomorrow. Larry Elder, one of the leading Republicans in the recall, will discuss why he does not think that climate change is primarily responsible for the state's wildfires. And Britain's Prince Andrew is challenging a U.S. federal court's jurisdiction to hear a civil suit accusing him of sexually assaulting Virginia Jufri two decades ago. His lawyers will argue that Andrew was not properly served with a lawsuit. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much. Up next, the China crackdown continues, and it's definitely not just on tech. Also, we'll talk about what's old being new again and Epic's appeal. It's a big week for Apple. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire, and today's slate is really China and old tech, although Apple's newer tech. But we'll get into all of it. Here with your key takeaways are Michael Yoshikami of Destination Wealth Management. He's the founder and CEO. Molly Wood of Marketplace, where she's the tech host and senior editor. And Matt Maley, who is a managing director at Miller Tabak. Welcome, all of you. It's great to have you here. Let's start right in with China's crackdown continuing. Shares of Alibaba dropping after reports Beijing wants to break up Ant Group's Alipay and force the creation of a separate loans app. The Financial Times is reporting Ant Group will also have to hand over all user data uh, that they use to impact loan decisions for a new credit scoring joint venture, which will be partly government owned. There you can see Baba shares down 4% today. Uh, Tencent falling in sympathy. Loop Capital, this was a downgrade. They downgraded the stock. They admit they're late. They cited more regulatory uncertainty, and Tencent is down about 2% right now. So, Michael, broadly speaking, I'm going to ask you the same question we ask you every couple of weeks here. Uh, have we kind of reached the bottom or the end of this crackdown yet? And what is this all really about? Uh, we have not reached the end. It's really about China basically exercising its uh, control. Um, and the regime is very, very interested in making sure that they're, they're the ones in the control and it's not uh, people like uh, Jack Ma, for example, at Alibaba. So, you know, it's, it's really, I think, indicative of uh, uh, the state, uh, the Chinese state really basically saying, it's us, it's not you, and you're going to play by our rules. And it doesn't really matter what the market says. We're going to break things up the way we think they need to be broke up. Molly, it's remarkable to me that they don't see bigger uh, growth concerns as a result of this. It is really interesting. I think that most likely the Chinese government is seeing, you know, growth for itself and saying we can't let these companies become a threat to our dominance. I would not overlook the user data part of this. China has, you know, ostensibly put in what 
are supposed to be protections for consumers, data protection. But of course, this government has a long history of surveilling its own citizens. And so if it's going to these, you know, what used to be semi-private companies and saying, we'd like all the data that you have, I think that is an important consolidation to think about, too. Sure. All right, Matt. So let's bring it down to what people should do in terms of shares like BABA or JD or Tencent. Or, I mean, you name it, you can go down the list of the K-Web more broadly speaking. We've seen it get a little bit of a bounce lately, but what would you do with it? Yeah, it's funny because we've seen a couple of uh, you know well-known investors kind of go in and try to pick the bottom a couple of weeks ago, and they bought them almost immediately. Said, "Oops, that was too early." And mm-hmm. and I agree with both Michael and Molly. I think this is is they're telling us. I mean, on a consistent basis, every. I was to say every month or almost every week uh, that they're in control, and this is not just a situation where people are like, "Geez, can you know you and I buy the stocks of these companies like Tencent or, or Alibaba, etc." But you know, what are these venture capital, private equity firms going to do in the early investing? Uh, if the companies can, can uh, I'm sorry, if the government can come in and take over, you know, these educational companies and and and, and go into some of the private uh, uh, data and stuff like that, uh, it, no, nobody's going to be investing there. So I think uh, at some point down the road there'll be an unbelievable opportunity. I, I, I don't think it's anytime soon, though. All right, so everybody's sounding caution. So let's dig a little bit further into this because it's not just tech that's in Beijing's crosshairs. The Chinese EV stocks, the electrical ve- uh, electric vehicle names, are sinking after the nation's industry minister called for consolidation of the sector. This was an interesting one. He said that there were just too many EV makers. Usually it's the opposite problem. It's market concentration people don't like. This time it's proliferation. And shares of Soho China, which is one of the largest property developers, are plunging in Hong Kong trade, down about 35% after a takeover deal fell through with the Blackstone Group backing away from its $3 billion offer. Michael, which of these is the more significant uh, event for you? Uh, the Blackstone deal is is not, a, it, it's not the, uh, a huge deal. Blackstone basically just thought wisely to not invest in China right now. I think really basically the government going in and saying that they're going to uh, impact the free market. They're essentially going to say, we're going to have a certain number of competitors and maybe 300 is too much. You're absolutely right. It's just like when they say Alibaba is too strong, mm. they say essentially all of these EVs are too weak and they need to be consolidated. So the government has a master plan here a master plan that only they know, and that is what is going to be implemented. You know, back to Alibaba just really briefly, if I could. Uh, you know, it, it didn't get much press, but Alibaba essentially, quote-unquote, volunteered to give 100 billion yuan, which is, how much is that? That's like 13 billion U.S. dollars, a third of their cash, wow. to basically Chinese social initiatives. I, I, I say volunteer, uh in quotes. Not really yeah. volunteer, but it was highly suggested. Um, when you have that sort of government intervention in the free market enterprise, it makes it very, very difficult for companies um, to operate in a free market way. And it certainly is going to make it difficult for investors on an outside basis to really decide what these things are really worth. And Molly, it will, it will just be fascinating to see, OK, is this forced consolidation, for example, in the EV space? China's EV uh, innovation has been quite good. I mean, this is a huge opportunity. If they get it right, it's a huge missed opportunity for the U.S. So it's strategically vital, not to mention the supply chain that goes into making batteries and EVs and all the rest of it. So this is a huge gamble they're making. It really is. And and I mean, I think we have to say this has never been a free market, right? Yeah. We have sort of gotten the impression that it might be. It certainly has never been. And now China is putting its thumb on the scales in all kinds of ways, maybe saying, look, 
We would like to pick a few EV winners for various reasons, political and otherwise. We would like to put all of our capital behind them and make sure they're a success. And it's easier to control 10 than it is 300. So it could be successful in terms of propelling 10 or more EV companies to you know great heights and really succeeding at this energy transition that China has started. It could also fall on its face, though, because we don't know what this style of sort of government capitalism is going to look like going forward. Yeah. And so, Matt, I could ask you about the impact on a number of different stocks. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the big U.S.-China multinationals like Apple, like Starbucks, which obviously, if the Chinese government is interested in jobs, they seem to not want to mess too much with. But sticking, for example, with just the EV space, Matt, what would you do with a name like Tesla as all this is going on? I mean, it's very, if people can't really figure out what the market there is supposed to look like, then what do you, what do you as a trader want to do with the names that might be most exposed to that? Well, again, you, 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 there's so much uncertainty because you really don't know what's going to happen. What you know, what what's their next move going to be? So it just makes it very, very difficult. Now, obviously, uh, China is very important to Tesla, uh, but Tesla isn't totally dependent on, on China, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not pure China play. Uh, but you also have this issue uh, as well with what is China doing in, in terms of they are they really trying to de-risk uh, or de-lever their their economy? Uh, how much do they want to do that? I mean, you, you talked about uh, Blackstone uh, backing out of that real estate deal. I mean, we see what's going on with uh, Evergrande, is it Evergrande yes. or Evergrande? Yes. Uh, you know, these guys are smart guys. I mean, remember, they went, they were a private company for 25 years. And then in you know, the summer of 2007, they, they sold themselves to the public. And three months later, the market topped. Let's hmm. uh, see what's going on in China in the, in, in the real estate area. And I, I think it's more of a deleveraging issue. And it really does, uh, you know, raise some concerns. Right. And a lot of us who have seen ugly deleveragings are wondering if that's what this is, just how elegantly they can pull it off. All right, we will turn our attention back to the U.S., where old tech is pretty hot this year in terms of performance. Goldman just reiterated Dell as a buy, adding shares to its conviction list, saying strong cash flow and a clear roadmap for paying down debt are reasons to be bullish. Dell's up about 35 percent this year, and Goldman sees about 40 percent more upside. Cisco is also up 30 percent this year after finishing 2020 in the red. Its shares are getting a boost from a rebound in IT spending as offices reopen. Anecdotally, traffic is definitely heavier. Cisco holds its investor day on Wednesday. Oracle is also up about 37 percent this year and reports today after the bell. Investors are hoping they can build on last quarter's revenue growth. I'm going to reverse the order. Start with you, Matt. Would you be a buyer of quote unquote old tech here? You know, I really like I really like this play. I mean, because one of the things is that we saw last week a little bit or recently with the stock market, you know, getting a little bit more volatility. And yet people went into the, you know, the kind of first one of the safety trades was actually the big cap tech names. But they're very expensive and they're very uh, overbought on a technical basis. But if you look at, uh, you know, Cisco and you look at uh, uh, uh uh, Dell Computer. I mean, the, here's these stocks that are. I mean, uh, Dell's actually down uh, from its highs in April. Well, these other names, the big cap te- tech names, are up 10 to 15, even almost 20 percent for Google. Uh, so a better better play. But not only that, uh, Cisco pays a two and a half percent dividend. None of these other mega cap names uh, are offered at all. And and Dell, which has great cash flow and is talking about entering a, a dividend there. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, initiating a dividend uh, could be a, a good play here. So if you're looking for a safety in in the uh, 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 in, in the tech area with, with, with what's going on with inflation and such. Uh, these could be the better play than some of these mega cap tech names that, again, are expensive and overbought. All right, Molly, I'm going to save you for Apple. So, Michael, I'll give you a quick final comment if you want to respond to that on where you would be advising people, old tech versus kind of growthier tech and all of that. And with the cyber disruption that has happened with a lot of these cloud names. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I, I think more conservative tech, whether you call it old tech or you call it cash flow tech, I think is really the way to go if you're going to be a technology investor. 
So you have many names that, uh, as such as the ones that were mentioned today, as well as names that, going back to the China theme, that actually can take advantage of still what's going to happen in China, which is going to growth, which is technology multinational. So um, I think having technology and portfolio strategies certainly makes sense right now. And I think that uh, the so-called old tech or more traditional tech uh, some of which were mentioned, I think, makes a lot of sense in portfolio strategies. All right. Very, very interesting. And we look forward to hearing from those results tonight. Now, finally, it is a big week for Apple. We, of course, had Epic Games just filing an appeal of last week's ruling in that California court battle. They asked the higher court to re-examine the Apple Epic case. Uh, I think I said that Epic Apple case. Anyway, that saga is ahead of Apple's annual product event, which is set for tomorrow. A new iPhone is expected, maybe some updates to the AirPods, the Apple Watch. As of January, guys, there were a billion active iPhones and 1.6 billion other active uh, Apple devices in use around the globe. Molly, what do you think the, the most significant aspect of this launch is for investors? I am going to say something that might be controversial here. I think that Apple actually constitutes old conservative tech at this point. It really doesn't matter what they put in their new phone. It really doesn't matter what the new watch looks like, right? None of this is going to be a reinvention. And for a lot of consumers, Apple is essentially a subscription service at this point. A new phone comes out one or two years, they get it. A new watch comes out every one or two years, they get it. And so as far as investors are concerned, I got to feel like, it's a safe bet. It's like the Honda Civic of stocks at this point. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's quite what they're going for. All right. So, Matt Maley, if, if Apple's launch event isn't going to be the most dazzling, exciting thing that it was maybe 10 years ago, what would be? I mean, who has stolen the thunder? Is it Tesla talking about Dojo and having AI Day and all this stuff? You know, where where is the market's enthusiasm, Matt, if it's really not around Apple anymore? And again, I'm not talking about the performance. The shares obviously have done fine. Well, it's it, it's funny because you know we we took, remember in 2019 people were saying oh my gosh Apple's old forget about Apple because uh, they're not in a, they're no, no innovation anymore uh, but as Molly says they just I mean bring in the cash uh, hand over fist so it's still a great play one thing for Apple down the road it's not going to be something immediate though uh, is and you had one of your guests earlier today on CNBC talk about the uh, smart glasses and there's a company called Microvision who everybody talks about their their lidar technology but they also have a new technology for the for the uh, screens for for the, the, the you know will allow us to have glasses that don't look like they're from a, a 1950s sci-fi sci movie they'll actually look like regular glasses so this is something uh tim cook i think down the road is look, uh, looks like it's going to be something their next new big thing but again that's not going to be coming in the next year or so but uh, look for that in the years to come and you'll still be p paid to wait very nicely with the uh, with the amount of cash that they bring all in. all right very well said and we will we'll, we'll get into the metaverse later on here we'll see if that's going to be uh that's where all the new buzz is michael yoshikami Hollywood, Matt Maling, thank you all very much for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, if you're a follower of Dow Theory, there are some red flags. We will explain them next after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a quick check of some of the big movers and transports today. Kansas City Southern is up about a quarter percent. They're going full steam ahead with Canadian Pacific's $31 billion bid to buy it. CP shares are down about two-thirds of one percent. And they're telling Canadian National they plan to terminate that existing agreement in favor of CP's offer. Canadian National, which is down one and a half percent today, does have five business days to respond before the deal is officially off of the table. Meanwhile, the transports in general, the Dow transport sector, is trying to snap its first five-day losing streak since January after posting its second negative week in a row and its worst one since June. You can see it was down 2.5% last week. Avis led the group lower with a 6% decline, although it remains the top trans 
uh, ports performer since January of 134 percent, while the broader sector is only up 15 percent. But often the transport's underperformance is something that market watchers like to point out. New York City's indoor vaccine mandate starts being enforced today. Up next, with shares up more than 40 percent since its IPO in June, we'll speak with the co-founder and CEO of Clear, which operates Health Pass, about their business partners and what's next for these moves. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. New York City begins enforcing its vaccine mandate for indoor activities like dining and going to the movies. And one of the methods people can use to prove their vaccination status is the Clear Health Pass. Joining us now are Clear Chair and CEO Karen Seidman-Becker, along with our very own Bertha Coombs. Hello to you both. Bertha? Thanks very much, Kelly. And thank you, Karen, for joining us today. So one of the things that you have launched this fall is the Come Back Better initiative. You've partnered with some 130 organizations, including the New York Stock Exchange, to help businesses to verify that people have their vaccinations. Is that something that you anticipate growing as there's a talk of a potential federal mandate? So look, happy to be here today, thrilled to be here and thrilled to be at the New York Stock Exchange with people. My kids are back in school. And so this really is about moving forward better and faster. And uh, we intend to continue to expand uh, our partnerships. I was inspired this weekend being downtown for 9-11 events and seeing how New York City came back better through public-private partnerships. And that's what we're working on to have businesses come back better, stay open, get people back to work, get them back to what they love, from sporting events like the Raiders to restaurants through our uh, announcement today with Resi and Open Table. So we're going to continue to expand through public-private partnerships to help come back better and get everyone back and, and keep it safe. How complicated is it to keep this information current, especially now as New York City will begin verifying that restaurants and other inside venues are actually checking for these credentials? So that is the core of what we do, making experiences trusted and making them frictionless, whether it be testing or vaccine or boosters, which will be launching by the end of September. It is creating this platform that makes it easy for consumers and businesses to trust the information as well as you are you. So you are your ID and your vaccine or your test information, this kind of one-stop shop, if you will. So I have a a fair disclosure on my phone, uh, my vaccine card, and I wonder, will it update and tell me automatically when boosters are available, or is that something that I still have to download manually myself? So we are working on the the product roadmap and continue to make it easier for consumers. So I expect those features will be coming, but the booster will be here, your ability to add your booster uh, by the end of the month. You know, when we used to, when I used to travel, I remembered, you know, having a little yellow card that had all my vaccines for international travel. How are we going to be able to keep this up to date if this does indeed become something that is endemic? And is there a way to make this automatically? Could you opt in to have that automatically? And how hard is it for that back end technology to do that? 
So you said exactly the right thing, which is everything that we do is opt-in. I too traveled abroad to Kenya a few years ago and they kept saying don't use a, lose the yellow card. I have five people in my family and, and so that was a little bit of a daunting task. And so building these secure integrations and being able to keep this information up to date is core to what we do. And so that is exactly to the point. This is not new. This has been around for a long time having to have your information, and this is important, having people have access and control of their data to be able to use it as they need and make it as easy, and building these integration and these pipes is what we've been doing for you know well over the past year. Karen Seidman, thank you so much for joining us. We'll continue this conversation as I'd imagine this issue is going to continue for some time. You're yeah. right, thanks Bertha. I wish it weren't Bertha, but you're absolutely right. Bertha Coombs and Karen, uh, thank you both. Up next, from new investments to changing the culture, we'll get a look at how new Apollo, Apollo's new CEO, I should say, is shaking things up. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Mark Rowan became CEO of Apollo back in March, and with just six months under his belt, he's already made some pretty big changes. Leslie Picker sat down with him as part of Delivering Alpha to discuss all of those changes and his uh, plans for now. She joins me now with more. Leslie. Hey, Kelly, under his short tenure so far, Mark Rowan inked an $11 billion merger, made several fintech investments, posted the best quarterly earnings in eight years, and yet Apollo's stock price continues to trail its peers, something analysts attribute to the fallout over former CEO Leon Black's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. I asked Rowan how he plans to move beyond the overhang. I wouldn't be a CEO if I didn't think my stock price was undervalued. Uh, for us, I think the noise is largely behind us. Uh, this has now been up to us to execute. Uh, while our stock has gone from the 40s to the 60s, we have a long way to go. His key growth area is credit, representing 70% of the firm's half a trillion dollars in AUM. He expects credit to be twice as large in five years. The firm still does private equity. And while he noted that there are overlooked sectors that are providing opportunities for buyouts, he believes the market is currently, quote, priced to perfection. Rowan said among his portfolio companies, he's seeing inflation pop up, quote, everywhere. Everything we once did now costs more. Uh, lead times pressure on inventory, pressure on supplies, pressure on employment. I mean, our experience in our portfolio is really no different than the broader economy. We have a portfolio that in many ways is representative of the broader economy, and we're seeing it everywhere. He does, however, believe that inflation is transitory. You can watch the full half-hour interview at DeliveringAlpha.com. Kelly. Leslie, what is this, the season of Delivering Alpha? This is it's the a, delivering alpha season. We, it's like oh, we got weeks uh, of this. It's like football season. <laughs> Leslie, thank you for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Leslie thank Picker. You. And on September 29th, Delivering Alpha brings together the biggest names from institutional to sovereign funds, private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, and so much more economic and political thought leaders. Register today at DeliveringAlpha.com. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.